Your mum's got to come downstairs just as we start recording, isn't she? Yeah. Here she comes. Just a walking down the street, singing do I did it, did it, dumb did it, do she look good? What? See, you can't do anything, can you? Kids, all the time, knack, knack, knack. Ruining my seduction technique. She look fine. She look good. She look fine. Well, she nearly broke my mind. No? Okay. Is that your seduction technique? That's totally my seduction technique. <laughs> What's a treat, dude? Okay. So where do you think you came from? Lots of alcohol. Yes. Pre-credit sequence, then. <laughs> Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Christmas 2013. Hey, Kids Comics wish to extend everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Every year, I say I should get one of those kazoos, so I can go, <laughs> and every year I completely forget. Shame. It, it would, wouldn't it? That's what I mean. I should get the real thing. Because every year it's after Christmas that we have plenty of them, because they all pop out of crackers. Don't they? Speaking of crackers, I love. How you doing? <laughs> it's the Christmas show. We love the Christmas show. Don't we? Stand up, put on hats. Happy Christmas, everybody. The email section of the show will not Most be Christmassy. <laughs> Because obviously these emails are from the middle of November, when nobody was feeling Christmas, eh? But now everyone but is feeling everyone Christmas. everyone was playing Christmas songs. Yes. Yes, but not on this show. No. No, 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 no. We didn't play Christmas songs on this show until this episode. No Christmas from us until Christmas Eve happens. Christmas songs? Songs, Miss I was playing a Christmas song. La, 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 I was working a thong, singing a Christmas song. Miss Moneypenny, how are you doing? Oh, yes. It's a fine Chianti. No, that's something else completely. I think I'm mixing up my secret agents with my serial killers. Now I, now I sound like Harry Enfield's Tory boy. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Could it be worse to do a Father Christmas impression? <laughs> ho, ho, ho. There you go. Ho, ho, ho. That was ho, ho, ho. What if Sean Connery played Father Christmas in a, in a, a feel-good Christmas movie? When Santa was Scottish. <laughs> Santa, Santa Claus. Oh, yes. With his Miss Moneypenny. No, sorry, Mrs. Claus. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, and drinking alcohol has not been involved. No. It's quite sad. <laughs> not yet, anyway. anyway. No, not yet. Anyway, should we do some emails? We should, Before yeah. the episode just meanders to its inevitable conclusion without us actually doing anything of import. Yes. 
Alright, we've got an email from Guz Shaw that says, Bestest Batman Buffet. I like the idea of a Batman Buffet. What would it be, though? Bat wings. Fried bat wings. Fried bat wings. Um, some Robins. Freshly cooked Robins. <laughs> some, um, well, Batgirl. Are you a breast or an asthma when it comes to Batgirl? Stephanie Hash Browns. <laughs> Very good! <laughs> I love that! Stephanie Hash Browns! <laughs> Make sure you don't get the ones that uh, will spoil your meal. God awful! <laughs> oh, so why am I laughing? <laughs> um, anyway, Gus, yes, hello, Gus. Salutations, folks, says Gus. I've gone behind in my podcast listening. No! <laughs> That's not going to make sense. I recently found time to squeeze in some Hey Kids comics episodes. After finish off the second half of your Cosmic Spider-Man coverage, I actually listened to the first episode when it was new, I skipped ahead to your bestest Batman ever. I enjoyed the first segment and look forward to listening to the second. Respectfully, Gus. Well, thank you very much. Did you, he didn't get back to us to say whether he liked part two, so I can only assume <laughs> he, he hated every minute of it. He never came back. <laughs> said one thing somewhere that offended him and he <laughs> tossed off his headphones never came back to the show nope. he so disagreed with you including <laughs> some Grant Morrison story or whatever it's, it's my fault it's your it? fault he never came back <laughs> I can only apologise Gus if you're still listening let us know what you thought of Batman Part 2 all he was hanging you know our next email is lovely David Gutierrez. Hello, David. It says, to the humble Andrew Leyland, which would be me. You humble. I am humble. And I am humbled by this email. <laughs> Very humbled. It's Christmas! Andrew, read your praises, man. For the love of Pete, don't be humble. Oh, okay. All right. If you say so, I will read. You haven't, haven't been doing that recently at all. all. Pre- no, well, this, this was the email that sparked right. that off, wasn't it? See, we, we tell you not... We tell you to start reading out when people praise us and that's just gone straight to your head. Yes. I think you should go back to being humble. Alright, okay, we'll go back to being humble. Uh, David says, how's life going? It's tickety-boo. At the moment, Christmas Day. What's not to love? Have you cracked open Starman? I've read I the first trade. I want to go and dry. Uh, I've read the first trade paperback. Was alright? Yeah. I can imagine it gets better. I've not, I've not read it. What do you think of the fate of the Eighth Doctor? My second favourite Doctor. Oh, no, no, Paul McGann, isn't it? Right, Paul yeah. McGann, yeah, because yeah, he's still the eighth. He's not being yeah, shunted yeah. up. In the new... T- <laughs> I'm sorry, John Hurt is a regeneration. He totally counts. I said all along that he will be a regeneration, a proper doctor. Did you? I said all along... It was you, was it? <laughs> we have no evidence whatsoever of me not saying this. Nope. I said all along, John Hurt is a proper doctor. What do I think of the eighth Doctor's fate? I thought that was fantastic, that little mini-episode. Yeah. The Night of the Doctor. It was great. Absolutely fantastic. Lovely to see Mr. McGann again. And I can only hope they will do some more episodes with him, because he was awesome. I didn't look that much older, to be honest with you. Although it doesn't really matter with him, does it? Because we never saw him regenerate yeah. until then. He could have get older as much as he want. So he, he could have been over a thousand years old, making yes. Matt Smith a lot older than him. Well, Matt Smith... Well, David Tennant was 904. Matt Smith is now 1,000... Is he 1,200 years old, according to um, Asylum, of, Asylum of the Daleks, or the other one? Maybe Christopher Eccleston just forgot, and Paul McGann, like, 
Yeah, he forgot with old age. Yeah. Paul McGann was, had such a long lifespan that Christopher Eccleston... No, 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 no. John Hurt had such a long lifespan. Because he is an official doctor, which I believe I totally called. Y- yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, Fury to the Max is the next email. It I, is see, from... I see what he did, though. Yeah, it's brilliant, oh, that oh, yeah. uh, It's the lovely Luke Jackanetic, if you couldn't guess. Some say Luke likes to dress up as Father Christmas in July. <laughs> and that his favourite Christmas snack is ho-hos, which you can also partake of in July. All we know... And come free. He's there with a membership to two true free. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the little lady by ho-hos. I want them to just go away. I am fed up of them now. It's Adam. <laughs> I really don't. Why well, did they get our address? That one we said to Senior Demanza was a fake address. <laughs> we didn't even tell him where we live yet. They still show up. He knows all. He knows all. He sees all. <laughs> yeah. He is like Father Christmas. He knows if you've been bad or good. <laughs> Mostly bad. Mostly bad. Anyway, front centre, Leylands. Oh, that was quite... Um, that was Ali Erme, wasn't it? Was it? Showing up for the email. Really enjoyed hearing your coverage of Fury Max, as this was a series which I had passed on completely and not paid any real attention to. I was mostly turned off the Max line after the OK but not great Cage Max miniseries, and generally feeling that the for a mature reader's line, Max seemed to be the old chestnut of what a 14-year-old thinks mature is. Whether that is a fur assessment or not is up for debate, but this series and the basic concept, putting Fury back into war zones after World War II and showcasing the changing political landscapes of the world sounds very solid, and your praise of it honestly piques my interest. Listening to you guys discuss the series reminded me of a line from the film Gladiator, a soldier has the benefit of looking his enemy in the eye. I did want to ask you a question, Andy. Well, feel free. That's what this section of the show is all about. You said that you do not view trailers for movies you are interested in, but will watch trailers for films you are on the fence for. My question is thus. How do you avoid trailers when you go to the theatre? Do you close your eyes and put your fingers in your ears, chanting la 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 until it's all over? Do they not show trailers before films in the UK? I know I'm making this sound jokey, but I am genuinely curious. I'm pretty sure the last thing I watched in the cinema, you did do that to one of them. La 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 I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure you did. The last thing I watched in the cinema was Thor 2. Um, so, I don't remember what the trailers were. Well, to take those in, in order. Ah, Thor. Gratuitous topless scene. Didn't get a similar scene with Kat Dennings or Natalie Portman. I don't think that's equality. Sexism. Quite frankly, yeah. Sexism. Blatant sexism. Can I answer Luke's question? Yes. Now that you two have finished ogling over Thor. What's two? What do you mean two? Were you not ogling Thor? No, I wasn't. Excellent, good. <laughs> Just rhymes with ogling. Anyway, moving on. Oh dear. Uh, we don't go to the cinema that much. It's quite an expensive trek to the cinema now that there are five the, of us. The majority of the films we say we'll go watch at the cinema are the films we'll wait to come out on DVD. Yeah, the, we will only go to the cinema if it's something I really, really, really want to see. And I really, really wanted to see Gravity. We didn't get to the cinema to see it, so so we don't go to the cinema that much. If a trailer comes on before a film, I, I watch it. I don't really have much choice, do I? Yeah. Um, I, you say I did the la 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 thing, but I don't remember. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure you did. So, do you remember this, love? Which one was it? He said we only went watching Thor two. There was a trailer, and I went, I don't want to see it. I, I don't remember. I didn't specify with Thor 2, but we so That was the last the time cinema, I went to the cinema. Or it was on before a DVD, and you did do Well, that. DVD, I'd just fast forward it. 
I don't. I don't remember that either. Either you're making that up. I, I, I could be. <laughs> funny whether it's true or not. <laughs> when in doubt, tell the lie. <laughs> if it's funny, that's what I always go. So in terms of the cinema, it's not really that much of a problem. I think we've been to the cinema, what, three times this year? Probably. Man of Steel, Thor 2, anything else? Uh, you went watching Wolverine. Green. I went watching Pacific Rim. I think that's the three times we've been to the cinema this year. Yeah. So, so there you go, that. The Hobbit was last Christmas, yeah. So three times we've been to the cinema this year. It's very easy to avoid trailers on television because Angela and I don't watch a lot of live television, do we? If we watch stuff on TV, we tend to record it because I just cannot be arsed with adverts. If it's on the BBC, obviously that's not a problem. However, avoiding trailers for the Doctor Who 50th was a lot harder than you'd think it would be because the BBC just kept plugging the hell out of that show. I, did, I didn't have any problem with it because I didn't watch the BBC. Well, I was watching all the other stuff that they showed leading up to it and obviously they would put a trailer beforehand. Yeah. So avoiding trailers for that was much harder. I even managed to avoid the viral things where Matt Smith would come on before a TV show. Right, yeah, I didn't see any of that. I, I saw one of them just because I looked it up after someone told me. Right, okay, no, I didn't see any of that. So that was more difficult. It's actually, look, it's really not as difficult as you think it is. Most trail, I mean, there are some god-awful scumbags who will have a pop-up advert that just plays. Yeah. Star Trek Into Darkness did that. Okay. But I wasn't interested in seeing that at Cinema anyway, so I didn't care. Yeah. But for the most part, you have to click play on a trailer to look at it. So it's, so it, it's quite easy for me to say, I'm not going to click play. I've not seen the trailer to Captain America yet, and I don't oh, intend on oh, seeing it but it's... until I see the film. I knew nothing about Thor. I think that in, uh, helped immeasurably in my enjoyment of that movie. I didn't know half that film was in England. Have you seen Spider-Man 2? Uh, I have watched the trailer for Spider-Man 2 because I'm on the fence with that. I really So I did watch it. it. I thought it looked okay. So I've now got to the point where, okay, I'm going to go watch Amazing Spider-Man 2. I will not watch any further trailers. Because okay. have you not seen this past couple of weeks, everything popping up? New footage in the German trailer! Yeah. Some more new footage in the UK trailer! And I'm like, can you not just wait till the film comes out? It's, it seems to me that there's an awful lot of complaining that they know what's going to happen in the film from all these people that have done nothing but watch every single trailer yeah. before they see the film. And you're like, as far as I'm concerned, you've got no one else but yourself to blame. So it isn't that difficult, to be honest, unless, you know, I accidentally stumble upon one, for the most part, I can quite easily avoid them. Mm-hmm. I can quite easily avoid everything. When Facebook really starts pissing me off with people, I just put it on our homepage and just leave it there. Fair if people want to tag me in a post, I'll know what it says. If they want to say something to me, they'll say it or message me. Mm. But when it starts really annoying me about stuff, I just go, right, I'm bailing out now, bye. I don't get all bent out of shape about it and start posting things that are going to upset everyone. I just go, right, I'm checking out, see ya. Yeah. See, I'm not really like that. If I see something I'm bothered in, then I want more of it now. But if I'm not asked about it, it's like, say with the new Grand Theft Auto... I was that was in production for th- th- four years before I even was bothered about it. <laughs> so I, I didn't care about it. But then when I saw a trailer, even though it, there was only a, a year left until it came out, I still really wanted it just because. But you can't really spoil a game in a trailer. You can't. No. Can you? Or can no. you? I, said, I don't know. You could. Could you? Yeah. Right. Okay. Because I thought all these games now had multiple outcomes depending on what you're doing. Some of them do. It, it depends if it's part of the Call of Duty franchise or not. And let's be honest, the games I like playing basically involve me sitting behind the wheel of a, an American muscle car and driving. And a very linear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to Batman Arkham Origins. Mm. Looking forward to that. 
Anyway, um, super quickie. Luke says there is a film version of War of the Worlds, which is an honest to goodness period piece that was later re edited and turned into a pseudo documentary. I looked at the wiki entry that he emailed us the link for. It got terrible reviews. Did it. I'm still interested in checking it out, though. Luke continues also a quick aside about some giant monster topics. Hey. Luke's favourite subject. The monster Kong fights on Faro Island in King Kong vs. Godzilla is named Udako and is a giant octopus, not a jellyfish. In fact, he was portrayed by a real octopus moving along the miniature set by having warmer blown on him. Yeah, we noticed Yeah, that. we did notice that that was a real octopus. Yeah. Anyway, several octopi were used. Most were set free, but one of them became director in Oshiro Honda's dinner after the sequence was shot. <laughs> <laughs> <Those> oh. crazy <laughs> I presume that film did not have a no animal was hurt disclaimer at the end of it. Oh, that would be a lie. No, no, if no animal was hurt during the making of the film, <laughs> that would be God's honest truth, wouldn't it? Yeah. He ate the thing after they finished filming. So. <laughs> Also, Luke continues, Michael mentioned Godzilla's arms waving out to the side in that film. This is a beloved look for Big G, and there have been dozens of toys, statues, and other merchandise of the 1963 Godzilla, typically with his arms waved out to the side. He didn't make a statue from this film, which I really want. That is an expensive statue. Oh, probably, but it's of King Kong ramming the tree down Godzilla's mouth. <laughs> a statue of him. Oh, does it have, like, arm movements? So his arm lifts up and then rams the tree and he's gone. <laughs> I don't know if he's doing that. Pull-back action. Yeah. <laughs> Pull-back action on the arm. <laughs> that would be awesome. Or a little button on his back. Like the $6 million man had. <laughs> Thanks again for the Nick Fury talk, fellas. Really enjoyed it and looking forward to what's coming down the pike, Luke. Well, by now, Luke, you have listened to all our Silver Age shows. And, um, and it's up to you to tell us whether you liked them or not. I, I loved them. I thought they were fun. Our final email tonight is from Josh Allen. It's, uh, it's, it's subtitle is Nothing in Particular, which is almost a Smith reference. Is it? Nothing in particular, so shut your mouth. How can you say I go about things the wrong way? How soon is now? No, no, no. Alright, okay. Hello, That's Mr. Leyland. No, no. <laughs> Get out! <laughs> Hello, Mr. Leyland and young Master Michael. He's now a Mr. Dude. 18. I, I am, yeah. Totally a Mr. Totally. I have been wanting to write in for some time now, but as podcast consumption goes, I'm usually listening to your show during my commute in the car. So by the time I'm in a position to write an email, I've forgotten anything interesting I'd thought of while in the car. <laughs> Very funny. Was it Michael Bailey who wrote quick notes down when he was... Yeah, when he was writing in the car. We do not encourage that. We do not encourage any accidents. I've put it off for too long, so now I'm going to whip up some random thoughts, continues Josh. While I'm bored at work, I I heartily approve. Yeah. I know how much Andrew likes that. Hey, well done, Josh. We like that. Forgive me if I ramble, but who knows when the next time my lazy ass will write in. I'd first like to thank you for putting out your lovely podcast, because I've thoroughly enjoyed it since hearing that great first promo whilst listening from Crisis to Crisis, which is an excellent show. Your podcast is easily... It was an excellent promo in an excellent show, yeah. Your podcast is easily my favourite father-son podcast from across the pond, the world, the universe, and dare I say it, the multiverse. We're probably the only one. But I'll take that compliment. I will, I will, I'll have that. That's another quote from the poster. The best father-son podcast in the multiverse. Yep. In brackets, the only father-son podcast in the multiverse. Also, I'd like to say I wholeheartedly approve of where you've landed for your new intro sequence. 
I enjoy being asked to sit comfortably while getting to hear Michael giggle after his father's penetration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have been here for the sex talk. <laughs> here comes the random. I'm a big Superman fan, and I'm in the middle of the second listen-through of your happy birthday Superman coverage. It was done so nicely, it should be listened to twice. Oh, thank you very much. It's more than I listen to it. Yeah, see, you don't listen to it once. I, I, Quite frankly. I listen to it when I record it, yeah. and when you edit it. Well, if, even when you have headphones in, we can still hear it upstairs. Well, I have to make sure all the nuances, <laughs> all the subtleties that we put into the show are core for the lovely listeners to appreciate. Of course, yeah. Of course, all the lovely subtleties we put in. All of them. Everyone. All one. Oh, no. There's a lot of things you can do to describe this show, but subtle wouldn't be one of them. In one of the first issue sodes, <laughs> Andrew said that he, could find, he couldn't find the first reference of the cape pouch. I think somebody emailed in about that, didn't they? I think about so. It was either J. David Wheater or Tom Panarese, I think. Mm. If it wasn't either of those two August gentlemen, I do apologise. My memory is not what it once was after some mulled wine at Christmas. See, still Christmas ship. <laughs> I'm currently reading through all the Golden Age Superman, says Josh, and I came across in the newspaper daily strip number 633, a caption box reads, Superman removes his outer garments and conceals them under the cloak. In Superman issue 10 on the 13th page of the second story, a caption says, Superman removes his outer garments from under his cloak. They don't actually say it's a pouch, but that could well be what they were thinking. That's true. Mm-hmm. That could be the first appearance, Superman number 10. Andrew has praised Preacher on numerous occasions, and after you two covered a Preacher story out with Michael Bailey over at Views from the Long Box, an excellent show, I was convinced to check it out. Within a week of listening to that show, I found a run of issues, 17 through 66, and three specials at three for a dollar at one of the local comic shops. I then grabbed the first two trades and walked out of there with the full run for about $30. I was very excited. And well, you should be. That's a remarkable bargain. On a similar note, not long after listening to you talk about the longbow hunters i found that miniseries for five dollars and picked it up solely on your recommendation i'll have to let my local comic shop know that they should send you a check <laughs> yeah i won't be holding my breath on that josh uh, to, you don't say whether you liked them you'll have to tell us whether you liked them or not he hated them hated every minute of it our recommendations are never to be listened to again <laughs> as he tossed off his headphones and there's another listener that we lost <laughs> My first exposure to Constantine, continues Josh, was the post-Brightest Day Swamp Thing miniseries, and then in Justice League Dark. I liked the character for the most part. I enjoyed listening to your Hellblazer coverage and hearing your opinions on how DC is treating the character versus Vertigo. I'm sure there's more, but I should get back to work. No! No, 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 no. Uh, before I go, I'd like to ask you each a question. Ooh, we like questions. Oh, yeah. Andrew. Of the big two, my reading far- largely falls into the DC universe. Aside from the current run of Hawkeye, I have very limited comics exposure to the Marvel universe. If you had to recommend a 12, give or take, issue run of Spider-Man to someone whose only exposure to characters in the movies in the 90s cartoon show, what would it be? Oh, that's readily available in trade. Oh, I'm, I'm looking at my bookshelf where I don't have a lot of Spider-Man trades, do I? No. Because I've got all the comics, so I don't tend... I mean, I don't want to recommend Torment to him, do I? <laughs> uh, Death of the Stacys is available in trade paperback. That's a good one. Death of Gene DeWolf is uh, in trade paperback. That's a good one. Spider-Man, the original Clone Saga. That's interesting. I think that would be an interesting recommendation. <laughs> one more day. No. <laughs> uh... <laughs> you know, 
don't know. There could be two people who like that stuff. No, no, thrice, no. Um, oh, God. I wouldn't recommend Mark Miller's 12-issue thing, would I? No. Even though the artwork was nice. That's quite difficult, that. Mm. Straczynski's first Ultimate Collection? Because yeah. he only went crap with Sin's past. You were around Civil War, yeah. Yeah. Um, Roger Stern, the um, Marvel Visionaries. You can't go wrong with some Roger Stern. Yeah, because the Stanley Steve Ditko stuff's now only readily available in the Masterworks, isn't it? I mean, if you like black and white, the essentials are there. Mm. That's what I'd go with Death of the Stacys. That's what I'd give to somebody. Yeah. I mean, it means that you're killing Gwen Stacy off before you've actually got to know her. Oh, the, the Venom one. Birth of Venom? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's not a bad one. That was my first Spider-Man story. Yeah, that's a good recommendation, The Birth of Venom, because that's a trade paperback as well, isn't it? Yeah. And that's got Todd Muck artwork. It has. So that may be more down Josh's alley, and then you can expand outwards from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good... Yeah, we'll go with that. Either Death of the Stacys, or Death of Gene DeWolf, or Birth of Venom. That's what we go with for me. Michael, I'm thinking about starting a reading project all of Grant Morrison's DC work. As a fellow lover of reading lists, do you have a Morrison reading order? And if so, could you share it, as that would be appreciated? Thanks for your time and keep up the good work, Josh Allen. You're very welcome, Josh. Sadly, Josh emailed us that on the 18th of November... And I forgot to mention it to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, Josh. I really do apologise. I meant to say to you, oh, somebody's emailed us. Do you want to send him that Grant Morrison reading list? And I completely forgot, didn't I? Because mm. I've never said anything to you, have I? That's entirely on me, that, Josh. I do apologise. Uh, the best way to read the Grant Morrison's DC work is to read all of Grant Morrison's <laughs> DC work. In the order that it was published. In the, no, don't do that. You just jumble them up, throw them up and down. And they'll make more sense. They'll make You've got a Grant Morrison reading list somewhere. I have a... I, I do. I, I have a Batman. You've got a. He's list. got a Batman reading that list. I sent to Michael Bailey a while ago. Right. See if you can find that and send it to Josh. To the DC one, you just put in everything around it because, especially for Final Crisis, everything needs to be read for it. <laughs> Even Animal Man. Is do you remember when we just read comics for fun? I, 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 I read Morrison stuff for fun. I, I sit there. With no, I don't mean that's it's not a dig against Morrison. That's a dig against you've got to read everything. Yeah, but I, I find the fun in that. I, I, like I know it. you're you're obsessed with stuff like that. Yeah, but Animal Man helps. Swamp Thing. Well, goes towards Final Crisis. The Seven Soldiers does everything he ever did. The only things you can go without reading are he's old Batman stuff right. Gothic and Arkham Asylum I quite liked Gothic hated Arkham Asylum I wasn't a fan of Arkham Asylum good not doing that on the show though no <laughs> good 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 anyway we'll call it a day with emails there and we will move on we've still got quite a lot We're, we've got emails coming up from the 19th of November onwards from Chris Tyler Kyle Benning Luke Giaconetti Jason Trenner Chris Franklin David Gutierrez Sean Engel Bobby Coakley and others so if we haven't covered you yet Ian McGregor if we haven't covered you yet, you are coming up in next week's episode. Is it next week's? Yes, next week's episode. We'll have some lots of emails in. Will it? Yes. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and plug somebody's show. I don't know who's, because I'm in that podcast community thing now where I just pull a trailer at random. Fair enough. And we'll be right back with Christmas. La da 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 Christmas. La da 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 Christmas. Now? Uh, yeah. We'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Greetings. I'm Kevin Lauderdale, and the name of the show is It Has Come to My Attention. Once a month, I spend just a few minutes drawing your attention to genre-related things that may have slipped under your geek radar. Classic movies finally out on DVD or Blu-ray. 
not-so-well-known books, audio, graphic novels. Not the sort of stuff you'll see on Amazon's front page, but the sort of treasures that are buried several clicks in under the recommendations carousel. About half the time I mention things for proper geek parents or put into the hands of proper geek kids. And sometimes I even do a funny voice or two. All of this for free as part of the Chronic Rift Network. Available on iTunes and at chronicrift.com. And we're back. Thank you very much. It's a family affair, as Christmas should be. Ah, Christmas. I gave you my heart. If taken literally, that's kind of gross. <laughs> Christmas in comics here in the United Kingdom was a bizarre affair due to the nature of reprints and shipping, and even imported TV was affected because as Christmas in the UK is still when the network gets some of the largest ratings of the year, shows would be chopped and changed at the whims of the scheduler. Sure, the British humour weeklies like The Beano and The Dandy had the requisite amount of snow-themed stories through December, leading to a festive edition, normally released, appropriately enough, during Christmas week. These stories normally involved the Bash Street kids trying to skive off school due to snow, Dennis the Menace terrorising Walter the Softy with snowballs, and Desperate Dan trying to bake the perfect Christmas cow pie. And there was no shortage of festive homegrown televisual entertainment to keep us amused. Only fools and horses would invariably have a Christmas special. There would be the traditional rerun of a Morecambe and Wise classic, and there was, back in the day, always a blockbuster film to enjoy, such as Raiders of the Lost Ark or Superman 2, both of which received their UK television premieres over Christmas. Foreign imported entertainment, however, was a little more off the cuff. Purely in television terms, we rarely received TV shows from other countries in a timely fashion. This meant that Australian soap opera Neighbours, inexplicably hugely popular over here when I was a kid, tended to celebrate Christmas in the middle of summer. Largely, I suspect, because with a soap, you couldn't hold the episodes back to screen them at Christmas. This still left ITV and BBC in something of a quandary over what to do with traditional weekly television shows. I remember vividly that we got the Starsky and Hutch Christmas episode at roughly the same time as America, but that was largely due to the immense popularity of that show, with the BBC airing episodes as quickly as they could be produced. I also recall that in the middle of Knight Rider's third season, we were suddenly treated to a second season episode, ITV having wisely held over season two's Christmas show for the following year. Likewise, the BBC held back both Christmas episodes of Moonlighting to earn them as Christmas specials, but often the networks would not have the foresight to do this, so it's entirely possible we would witness Steve Austin's Bionic Christmas Carol in the middle of April, or Lois and Clark celebrate in March. Comics were likewise fragmented. The weekly nature of the UK reprinted material meant that we would never get Christmas stories at Christmas, rather a few months later, and even the US imported comics arrived on these shows on the cover date rather than the more accurate three months earlier, meaning the earliest these stories arrived was March. UK Marvel comics like 2000 AD would pay lip service to Christmas with a few Snow or Father Christmas themed covers, but by and large the contents would not reflect the season. DC reprint monthly The Superheroes did manage to produce a Christmas issue, but they were an anthology title and not as tied into overall story arcs and continuity as the Marvel comics. To cover for this gap in the market, the UK comics editors would publish winter specials. These were, as was the norm, magazine-sized, double the content of the weeklies, and sometimes had Christmas-themed stories. I remember I first read the Spider-Man Red Sonya team-up we covered last year in one of these winter specials, and there were instances where the annuals, traditionally released at Christmas, also had seasonal stories within. 
By and large, though, we read Christmas stories whenever they happened to be published, or screened. Of course, there are two kinds of Christmas comics issues. There are the kind where the fact that it is Christmas is largely irrelevant. The characters may be at a Christmas party or seasonal event, but by and large, the story could be told at any time of year. The movies Gremlins or Die Hard could have been set at any time of year, but the Christmas setting just adds to the fun. Then there is the actual Christmas story, one designed especially to being told at Christmas time. It's hard to imagine it's a wonderful life working if set at any other time of year. So this year we've chosen one of each of these, a story that is set at Christmas and one that is an unabashed Christmas story. First up is the story that just happens to be set at Christmas. Power Man and Iron Fist 50 came out on January 17th, 1978, with an April 1978 cover date. The cover by Dave Cockrum, which boasts that this is the fantastic 50th issue, and that this is a new era of greatness, but gives no indication that it is a seasonally set story. It does, however, provide an utterly magnificent movie poster-style cover of Luke Cage, Power Man, and Danny Rand, the Iron Fist, running towards the reader like they mean business. They are in full colour, whilst the background is blood red, depicting exploding police cars, gambling chips, playing cards and dice, bionic P.I. Misty Knight, Cage and Fist embroiled in fisticuffs, and the issue's bad guys, Stiletto and Discus, who sound more like a disco dancing duo than a fearsome adversaries. They would probably be much more at home amidst the tinsel and questionable sweatshirts of the Top of the Pops Christmas special. Nevertheless, this is an excellent cover, ably demonstrating that this is an action book while simultaneously making it look like a James Bond pulp thriller. The colour doesn't really help us, because we're reading this in Essential Iron Fist Volume 1, which is black and white. Did you like the cover, though? Actually, do you know what? It looks better in black and white. Because it's not all one colour. Yeah, because it's not all one colour. It's one of those that probably would have benefited from being multiple different colours. That would actually look better, I think. Yeah. It's good cover, though. It's, it's funny how even as a movie poster type cover, which we have today, it's still better than what we have today. Yeah. I mean, I'd have put money on that being burned, to be honest with you. I was quite surprised to find out that that was Dave Cockrum. <laughs> but certainly Power Man Luke Cage's face looks like a burn face. But the rest of it doesn't, so... I don't know, maybe there's some jiggery-pokery going on with redrawing of faces or stuff. I think that's a brilliant cover. I really do think that's an excellent poster-style cover. Like you say, much better than the poster-style covers we get today. I don't know why. It's just more dynamic. It's yeah. exciting. It's adventure. Just a couple of guys standing around. Yeah, and I'll drawn so they can sell the art at a later date and make more money. Yeah. Although, you know, you could sell that. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great cover. Interestingly, while it plays up the most unlikely team of all in unbeatable adventures angle, and that this is the 50th issue, it mentions nowhere that this is, in actuality, the first issue of the title Power Man and Iron Fist. The numbering actually carries on from Cage's own book, Power Man, which was itself originally entitled Luke Cage Hero for Hire, which I think is a much better title, and amalgamating the recently cancelled Iron Fist into one book. Freedom! Isn't free. It no, that was dreaming. Dreaming. And if you don't dream, you've free. got five. Who will? <laughs> Actually, that's pretty good. <laughs> anyway, freedom. You can do it again if you want. Isn't free. <laughs> dreaming is free. Well, dreaming is, but freedom isn't. Okay. Was written by Chris Claremont with art by John Byrne and Dan Green. Denise Wool lettered. F. Mooley coloured. 
And Archie Goodwin was the editor. At a Christmas New Year celebration of Luke Cage's freedom party, Cage rejoices that thanks to Misty Knight and Iron Fist finding evidence that exonerates him and the stellar application of the law from his lawyer, Juran Hogarth, he's a free man again. He's even legally changed his name to Lucas Cage. It's not all sunny days and roses, though, as his girlfriend, Claire, comes all the way to his happy day party just to dump him. To make it a little better, Misty offers him a job at her PI firm, Nightwing Restorations, with her partner, Colleen Wing. But before Luke can ponder on this, two vigilantes burst in, wanting Cage's head. They are here to prove crime never pays, see, and they are convinced Luke paid off some men to help him beat his rap. Despite being law and order through and through, they seem to have no issues with turning the party into a bloodbath, unless Iron Fist and Luke Cage can stop them. Iron Fist manages to make the scene first, punching Discus a few times around the face, but he's forced to abandon this to save Misty Knight's life. This leaves him wide open for an attack by Stiletto, but Iron Fist avoids every single one of his darts in the single coolest move in the book. Discus uses this time to recover and hurls an exploding disc at Cage to cover their escape. As Cage was with a civilian at the time, Iron Fist is livid, accusing Stiletto and Discus of being worse than the people they hunt, and he proceeds to kick the crap out of Stiletto. Cage, however, is fine, if a little annoyed, and the woman is likewise safe thanks to Cage's quick thinking, and he re-enters the fray. Stiletto and Discus have fled through the skylight, and Iron Fist have followed, but Discus's exploding discs cause him to fall from the roof. Clinging for dear life, Stiletto stands on Iron Fist's fingers. Cage distracts them and tackles Discus as Stiletto flies away thanks to his jetpack, but Iron Fist falls to his death. Actually, he doesn't. Fearing he will die, as his father did, Fist manages to angle his body over a lower building that has a pliable plastic bubble covering a swimming pool party, and he lands in the pool, damaged but alive. Cage, meanwhile, is pummeling Discus, bemoaning that if he'd stopped these two previously, Iron Fist would still be alive. Stiletto arms his dart guns, but the police burst in, and he opens fire, seemingly killing Detective Raphael Scarf. Misty Knight, enraged as Scarf was her mentor in the police force, wings Stiletto, and then aims her gun to his head and pulls the trigger, despite his pleas for leniency. Fortunately, Cage manages to intercept the bullet, preventing Misty from committing murder. It turns out Scarf is fine thanks to the dart hitting his badge, and the Iron Fist is also fine, and after the dust has settled, Cage, Danny, Misty and Colleen celebrate, with Luke accepting the job offered earlier. People don't really mention Dan Green, when they mention some of the greatest inkers of the Bronze Age of comics, but I recall he did a pretty decent inking job over John Romita Jr. on Spider-Man and here over Byrne. He doesn't have the slickness of Terry Austin, but he doesn't submerge Byrne's pencils either, like some of the inkers did on the Iron Fist strip. There's a great symbolic image of Cage on the splash page, here in his traditional 70s garb of metallic headband, chain belt and torn yellow shirt, bursting through a door that contrasts nicely with the rather mundane party situation underneath of Luke, Danny, Colleen, Misty and Jeren. kind of name's Jeren? celebrating Cage's exoneration. Byrne doesn't really get a lot of credit for body language. This page is pretty good for showing how uncomfortable Cage is and tucks. And I love his 70s ruffles yeah. on his tucks. And his cummerbund. Yeah, Luke really went all out there, didn't he? Tuxedo, bow tie, ruffles, cummerbund. Even though he says he doesn't like it. No, an iron fist is just kind of like a jumper and slacks. So maybe Cage felt the need to dress up in a tuxedo for some reason. Yeah. Very good. Nice splash page. Mm-hmm. 
one of those symbolic-y things that they don't kind of do anymore. A lovely character beat on page two where Cage makes it quite clear no matter what the outcome, he wasn't going back to jail, which is sold wonderfully by his lawyer, who just kind of coughs with embarrassment. I love that. Um, Misty says the feds were going to throw you back in stir. And Luke's like, I was never going back, Misty, no matter what the judge said. And his lawyer's like, um, yes, well, moving on. <laughs> like, oh, I'm having no part of this conversation. <laughs> Good. Funny. Colleen and Misty Knight's business is called Nightwing Restoration. Years before Dick Grayson would adopt the name. Whilst it is an amalgamation of both their names, one has to wonder if they grew up reading 60s Superman comics. Yes. Nightwing and Flying Bird. Yes, they did. Did they? Yes. Do you know that for a fact? In the Marvel Universe, they, they have DC Comics. In the Marvel Universe, DC Comics are real. Yeah. And there's competition as well, because in the Marvel Universe, Marvel Comics... Are also real. Four comics. Yeah. Yeah. So, that that would work. Yeah. So, did that not make your brain explode then when Spider-Man meets Superman? This does not make sense in continuity! Because then the comic characters within a comic. Yeah, does that just make you as, as continuity obsessed as you are? Does that make your brain go no? Uh, doesn't happen. It doesn't fit into the five-year timeline. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Despite this being the fiftieth issue, this is essentially the first issue of Power Man and Iron Fist, and it feels very much like a modern-day TV series retooling itself for a new season. The story goes that neither Power Man nor Iron Fist were particularly setting the sales charts alight, so the idea was to merge two moderate selling titles with the idea of making one solid selling title. The series carried on from Cage's numbering, as it was the highest, and the experiment kind of worked, putting two disparate characters together in a relatively organic way, and ran for a further 75 issues. Nowadays, they just launch it with a new number one, wouldn't they? Or Every year, a Netflix TV show, or make it into a Netflix TV show. You know, I'm so looking forward to a Luke Cage TV show. Oh, yeah, because uh, yeah, that's, that's so easy to do on a TV. Yeah, but I'm just looking forward to Alias. Do you really think they're going to do Alias properly? No, given that was a Max title. There's al- there's always hope. <laughs> you think? <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, that being said, it does seem rather strange that Iron Fist kind of gets short shrift in this story. It's almost just pretty much all about the new situation Luke Cage finds himself in, isn't it? Mm. There's the tying up of all the loose ends from his own series. He even gets a two-page origin recap, which Iron Fist doesn't get yeah. in anywhere. By contrast, Danny doesn't really get to do much other than hang around. Granted, Iron Fist's loose ends were tied up where every boot that gets cancelled gets its loose ends tied up. Marvel team-up. <laughs> that was Marvel Team-Up's function for a while. Book got cancelled? We'll wrap it up in Marvel Team-Up. Means we have to shoe on Spider-Man into it, but, you know, we can have him appear on page one and then disappear for 20 pages. Fair enough. Pop back up on page 22 and go, hey, how did that adventure go? <laughs> it went fine, Spidey, thanks. Thanks for loaning us your title. No worries, mate. <laughs> so Spidey's he swings off to the next adventure. Where in two panels he collects his uh, fee. <laughs> He collects his fee for for letting them appear in his comic. That's how he makes extra money. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Jonah not dishing out, let's loan our title. Well, no, Jonah doesn't dish out, does he? Oddly, whilst they do mention that he adopted the name Luke Cage after fleeing from prison, where he finds himself now indestructible and believed to be dead... They also mentioned that he's changed it by Depol, so that's his official name. They never mentioned that his real name was Carl Lucas. Okay. What have we got Luke Cage from then if his name was Carl Lucas? <laughs> hmm, I'm pondering that. Yeah. Yeah, seems um, 
bit of a leap, isn't it? A little bit. Is it not like in The Simpsons, Lenny Leonardson? Carl Carlson. Carl Carlson. <laughs> Those aforementioned loose ends are tied up pretty quickly. Clermont even dumping Cage's girlfriend from the cast in less than a page. It seems a bit odd, or it did to me, I don't know what you thought of it, that Clerm would get all dressed up, come all the way down to Cage's party on what looks like a really pretty terrible night weather-wise. Yeah. It's very heavy snow. Just to dump him. Maybe she was hoping to get in with Danny. You reckon? <laughs> yeah. She just kind of leaves. Danny's seeing um, Misty Knight at this point. Right. So she had no choice though. The opening pages to this issue are quite wordy and expositional. And as if Clermont is aware of this, there's a panel in the middle of the breakup scene of Stiletto and Discus taking aim at Cage. Basically saying, the action's coming. Yeah. Just hang fire. There's a nice sock to the comics code by establishing that Discus's weapon fires high energy laser bolts and not bullets. Mm-hmm. I presume they'll still kill you. Probably, yeah. Laser <laughs> could do, yeah. <laughs> could do. With it being a laser, it wouldn't stop, would it? No. Wouldn't it just carry through it, <laughs> yeah. cut through your target, then go through the building, then hit whoever was in the next building and just, just keep going? Throw some underground train down the line. <laughs> so, arguably. By not letting them have guns with bullets, the comics code have actually made them create an even worse weapon that would do more damage. What happens if you just get a, la- a mirror out as well? That would just be bad. It'd just deflect off it. I sometimes think the comics code didn't actually think things through. No, no, no. What can children mimic? Let's change this. <laughs> to something that they can't mimic, but is more dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Claire also, in the middle of dumping Luke Cage, name drops Cleopatra Jones, a 1973 black exploitation flick starring Tamara Dobson uh, as a Bond-esque CIA spy. You ever seen Tam- uh, Tamara Jones? You ever seen Cleopatra Jones? Yeah. Huggy Bird, isn't it? Okay. Antonio Fargus, isn't it? <laughs> I've seen Cleopatra I think I saw Cleopatra Jones. Oh, God, when I was a kid, I think. Don't remember much about it other than Huggy Bird, was in it? <laughs> What's the word on the street, Huggy? <laughs> I don't think he said that. Did he not? He may have done that, I don't know. Stiletto and Discus 2, and let's be very charitable here, B-listers. That is charitable. I, I found it funny that it was called Stiletto. Stiletto and Discus. You're going around in high heels, is it? Uh, yeah, most of the time. Um, they're armed with jetpacks, laser weaponry and lethal dart guns, which was quite a good armament. Wait, so they can't have bullets, but they can have darts? Yes, they can have flechettes. Uh, okay. That seems perfectly acceptable. Uh, they're both brothers, and are the sons of Warden Stewart, who was the warden of Cage's prison. i got to be honest, giving too much thought to this dumbass duo's motivation sheds lights on how silly they are. They are ostensibly vigilante heroes, who pursue criminals who beat the system on a technicality. But if the father is the warden, surely they'd know that Cage wasn't retried and found innocent. He was never guilty in the first place. Mm. He was framed. Best not to analyse them, really. Probably not. Isn't it? In addition, these guys act like bad guys throughout, having no problem putting the partygoers, presumably not all criminals who got away with it, in the line of fire. There are a couple of lines of dialogue... Very subtly done by Chris Claremont that implies Stiletto is a racist. Yeah. So that may be a motivating factor in him going after Luke Cage, but let's be brutally honest, any threat he may have posed is nullified by naming himself after a woman's shoe. <laughs> there is that, yeah. Isn't it? Stiletto. At least Discus was fine for the late 70s, early 80s. I did like that Luke occasionally called him Disco. Yeah. I that was quite funny. 
It's hard to imagine Spider-Man taking that name seriously. Luke Cage and Iron Fist treat these guys pretty seriously, all things considered, don't they? Yeah. Spider-Man wouldn't have done, would he? Spider-Man would have mercilessly took the piss out of Stiletto. Well, that guy's got a mullet, though. Just ask him for it. <laughs> I think that is Stiletto. Has Discus got a... Which one's got a mullet? The one on the left. Is that Discus or Stiletto? I can't tell the difference, quite yeah. frankly. I don't know which was which. Because <laughs> he introduces them as Stiletto and Discus on the same page by the same guy, so he doesn't say which one's which. Mm. They're both lame. Yeah. It doesn't matter, really, which one is it, to be honest. There seems to be some continuity problems, though, in the middle of this story. We clearly see Danny Rand duck off. There are no page numbers, I'm sorry, because it's in an essential, but we clearly see him duck off. I think I counted it as being page seven. And he changes to Iron Fist with no problems. Luke Cage, however, seems to change between being Luke Cage on the panel where he's being attacked by Stiletto, or Discus, whatever to being back in his tuxedo in the next panel to being dressed as Luke Cage again he's all Luke Cage but you know what I mean and he's, yeah. he's natty yellow and blue jeans in the next panel so he seems to be having some some problems between panels as to how he wants to get dressed yeah if he even wants to get dressed I think it would have been better if he'd stayed in his tux maybe he takes his tux off realises it's too bloody cold for just a shirt <laughs> puts it back on again but that means that he's got a shirt on under his shirt yeah. Doesn't it? Because he's got his Luke Cage yellow shirt on underneath his ruffly shirt. And it's not like the collars were small enough to no, hide. because so. it was the 70s. Yeah. You know, those collars were like helicopter blades, <laughs> weren't they? Flap them out enough, you could fly. And if you fell, your flurs would protect <laughs> you when you landed. So. so the 70s were actually quite intelligent. <laughs> In many words. It does look as well on this page where Luke's having his sartorial problems that editor Archie Goodwin makes an appearance in the bottom panel. I could be wrong, but that looks to me like Archie Goodwin. Mm. Check it out, lovely readers, listeners. If you've got this issue, if you've not taken my word for it. <laughs> Iron Fist, I love this bit. Iron Fist acknowledging that men will be men. Yeah. Wherever they are, whatever the time period. He pushes Misty Knight out of the way of being killed. And she kind of berates him for doing it, saying that she's a big girl now. And Iron Fist just looks at her and goes, I noticed. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> Sexist pig. <laughs> It was the 70s. It was. You know. As mentioned before, Iron Fist doesn't really get a lot to do in the story itself, apart from nearly die. But he does get the single coolest scene in the book. Stiletto, or Discus, whatever, catches Fist dead to rights and then fires a barrage of flechettes at him. Only to have Iron Fist slap every one of them out of the way faster than the eye can see, which is a wonderfully done panel by Byrne. Fist is in two different positions in one panel you know like Ditko used to do Spider-Man moving around in one panel but in this case Fist has only got two legs but you can see him moving from side to side so there's two shots of Iron Fist in the same panel but his arms are all over the place yeah I just thought it was brilliant a brilliant way no so it's a brilliant way of showing that he's moving faster than you can actually see yeah so I got from that that the guy's retina is retaining the image of where he was stood so because he's moving so quickly he's seen two of it I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Best panel in the book, in many ways. Cage, also, bit of a sexist pig, taking the opportunity to steal a kiss from the the wealthy socialite whose life he manages to save when Stiletto brings the roof down on him. It seems fair enough to me. It was the 70s. Free love. I like like his lines. Oh no, you broke your nail. My heart is broken. (laughs) 
<laughs> when she complains that it costs 50 bucks a piece nail sculpture and he's like oh yeah gutted <laughs> saves your life deal with it at least you can do is give me a kiss <laughs> and she does he doesn't give her much choice in the matter to be honest the fight gets taken outside and the, the weather is a bad snow flurry and Iron Fist is thrown off the roof hanging on with one hand and in a very nice touch by Clermont echoing how Danny Rand's father died when he twists his body to land in the pool Clermont has one of the girls mention Kurt Wagner apparently well she doesn't say Wagner at first does she she just says Kurt apparently this is Amanda Sefton who at the time was dating Kurt Wagner better known as the X-Man Nightcrawler. Mm. I thought it was lovely. That was a nice little touch, that. Because it, it makes the Marvel Universe feel like a real place. Yeah. That purely coincidentally, mm. Iron Fist has landed in the pool of the girl who's going out with Nightcrawler. Mm. They don't know each other. But it's them. By all accounts, this is mentioned in an issue of X-Men as well. Yeah. She mentions this to Kurt Wagner. I thought that was quite a nifty he little said piece. He said, "What a Yeah, <laughs> just as I was at this pool party at Christmas, this guy came crashing through the roof. A nightcrawler can have that old James Bond line. I didn't know there was a pool down there. <laughs> or he just says, "It's New York." Yeah, <laughs> it's New York. That's the strangest thing that happened to you. You got off lightly. Yeah. The ending, where Raphael Scarf is almost killed, seems to come out of nowhere, mm. and having him get saved by his badge was cheese of the highest order wasn't it yeah and Clermont surprisingly didn't even attempt to subvert it mm. it's a proper cliche he's dirt it's his badge and he's like oh look at that badge in my top pocket like like in Life of Mars where he has a, a hip flap yeah and he said oh, well what a, what a coincidence was that and he pulls out loads of other hip flaps <laughs> and says it's lucky he's an alcoholic <laughs> genius Life on Mars was great wasn't it uh, I thought this was mostly excellent issue. Thoroughly enjoyable to read, and once the fight gets going, uh, action-packed, which is lucky, as it would allow the reader to dwell on how dumb Stiletto and Discus are if it wasn't so fast-moving. Yeah. Cage and Fist are actually partners in this story, and this is something that will develop over the next few issues, and is handled quite organically. At the moment, Fist and Cage are simply around each other due to it being Misty Knight who found the evidence that exonerated Luke Cage, and Iron Fist is dating Misty's partner, Colleen Wing. It's the only reason they're there. Yeah. Or slowly over time, they will develop a friendship and become partners. The Christmas New Year part of the story, remember, this is a Christmas episode, is largely irrelevant, but the snowstorm does add an extra element of danger to the Iron Fist sequences. We can see here flashes of Clermont to come. His women are strong and independent, but hot-headed and fiery. In other words, real people. And Cage and Danny are both seen to be ladies' men. There are lovely small character beats, such as Cage's steadfast refusal to return to to jail and his discomfort in wearing a tux but Danny Rand isn't as well developed in the story still the art is excellent not prime burn but still solid and the action sequence are magnificently choreographed if this feels like set up for a new series well that's because it is uh, as I've said I read this in the Iron Fist Essential one of the best essentials I've ever read and I am sorely tempted to pick up some more Cage and Fist just to see where that story went what did you think, Michael? He said as he tosses his essential iron fist. I thought it was fine enough. That's it. It was fine enough. Yeah. And it didn't feel really Christmassy at all. Considering we're doing a Christmas <clears throat> show. Well, that's the point. It's, it's a story that's just set at Christmas. Alright. Next up, though, just Next for you, up. is a proper Christmas story. 
this was chosen just for me, was it? It wasn't chosen just for you, no, it was chosen because it was a proper Christmas story. Fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> I don't sit there and think, a Christmas story that Michael would like. No, that's when that's a Christmas story, that'll do. Marvel Team Up 127 came out on December 14th, 1982, sorry, cover dated March 83. The cover by Ed Hannigan and Al Milgram has the Watcher posing dramatically with his hand out and Spider-Man swinging in front. It's snowing, so it must be Christmas. Another clue? Oh, all right, the cover says it's a special Christmas issue. It's the colouring that I thought made the cover stand out, with a bright blue background and the snow flurry not having any black lines or definition. It looks quite Frank Miller. I like the building. Yeah, the building in the background is just blue and white, isn't it? There doesn't seem like there's any black lines. One of the reasons I picked this actually is because Kerry Gamble drew it. Okay. And I've just read the Superman graphic novel under a yellow sun. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Michael Bailey. Thanks, Mike. And Kerry Gamble's awesome. And I thought, we'll do a Kerry Gamble issue. And then it just became a case of, did Kerry Gamble ever do any Christmas issues? Let's shoot that in. So that's how this came about. It it's went a, in your field. It's a usual intense forethought and planning that normally goes into this show. Yes. <laughs> Every week. Every single week. <laughs> uh, Small Miracles was written by J.M. Dematis, Dematius, however you pronounce Dematius. it. Dematius, yeah. Penciled by Kerry Gamble, as we've already mentioned, and inked by Mike Esposito. Rick Parker lettered, Glynis Ween coloured, Tom DeFalco edited, and Jim Shooter was Santa's helper. Not Nothing Santa's. to do with the uh, uh, issue, just he was Santa's helper. Yeah, you bugger all, probably. He's <laughs> editor-in-chief, probably just put his feet up and did nothing. Fair enough. He hasn't got to the point yet where he's like, Secret Wars sold millions, so all comics must be like Secret Wars. And everyone else was going, but it was crap! It did sell millions. The extra zero was a mistake. <laughs> it did sell millions, actually. That's the sad thing. Peter Parker, a.k.a. the spectacular Spider-Man, swings across town on Christmas Eve, laden with presents, to attend his Aunt May's boarding house party. After eggnog is drunk and games are played, Peter notices that normal life and soul of the party, Arthur Chekhov, is a little down. A chat reveals that Arthur had invited his granddaughter, Bet, who he has barely seen since the death of his son and daughter-in-law many years ago. Despite the invite, it doesn't look like she's bothering to show up. Peter tries to cheer Mr. Chekhov up with a song, but a lethal attack of spider sense leads Peter to flee the party. Outside, a snow flurry covers both his abrupt change to Spider-Man and the appearance of the Watcher. The Watcher, one of a race of beings pledged to never interfere, silently gives Spider-Man an orb that manifests within an image of Bet Chekhov. Spider-Man, still none the wiser on how to proceed, swings off into the night. On the fabled blue area of the moon, the Watcher muses that for his constant interference in human affairs he has been shunned by the other members of his race, but once again, as the fate of Bet Chekhov lies in the balance, he finds himself unable to stand idly by. Spider-Man, meanwhile, tracks an address for Bet the old-fashioned way, via directory inquiries, but upon arrival at the address he finds Bet's roommate dead, a thousand dollars worth of cocaine on tap, and the police hunting for Bet herself. Spider-Man has hit a dead end. 
Ruminating on a nearby rooftop, Captain America happens by and gives Spidey a much-needed pep talk that galvanises the wall crawler, and more swinging around Brooklyn Heights leads his spider sense to give the old warning tingle whenever he passes a sleazy bar, but a rousting of the clientele reveals nothing. That's because Bet is in the apartment above the bar, being knocked around by a sleazebag named Book Todd, who arranges the theft of the coke from the mob. He decides Bet needs shutting up permanent-like, but Spider-Man finally figured out what his Spider-Sense was trying to tell him, and bitch-slaps Buck because Spider-Man, quite sensibly, despises men who beat on women. Bet, however, flees, coke in hand, right into the waiting arms of the mob. Spider-Man lays some smack down on the smack heads, but Bet runs scurred right into a bullet. Spider-Man curses the Watcher, and if you curse the Watcher, he appears. Spider-Man hurls the orb at him, asking what use is he, but it explodes harmlessly at the Watcher's side, as Bet is bathed in a Star Trek-like glow and starts breathing again. Peter Parker gets her to the hospital in time and calls Mr. Chekhov. Elsewhere, the Watcher looks on and is pleased that on this one night, this most special of nights, he made a difference. Hmm. Two minds on this one. But we'll get to that as we go along. Excellent splash page. Gamble draws a Spider-Man that seems to be a cross between Ramita Senior and Ross Andrew, which is not a bad thing. And this is a highly detailed piece of work as Spider-Man swings across town. Nice touch number one. The web sack Spider-Man keeps his clothes in is today bulky and cumbersome, as it has presents in as well, which we will learn in the next couple of pages. Second nice touch, there's a billboard advertising epic comics in the background. And the third nice touch, there is a bunch of kids having a snowball fight in the lamplight just under Spider-Man's left leg. I don't know why I liked that. Okay. I just thought it was a little, little touch. I like how Christmas Eve was being part of the dialogue. Has its own little caption box with a special dialogue yeah. thing on it's it. Yeah. Fancy, there's a fancy font name for that. Damn, I can't remember what it is. Christmas font. <laughs> probably, because <laughs> there probably is a Christmas font. <laughs> um, page two is likewise excellent. There are some lovely backgrounds of houses covered in snow. Gamel doesn't scamp on the backgrounds or even skimp. Sorry, and uh, it's just a wonderful example of sequential art. A Spider-Man swings across town, getting closer and closer to his destination. Lands on a rooftop, gets changed, bounces down, and then knocks on the front door. Gets changed on the rooftop. Yeah, why not? Well, because people might see him. Oh, spider sense had warned him, dude. <laughs> if anyone was going to see him, he may be around the back of the house, though. You never know. It's entirely possible. Um, also, note. Yes. The background sky looks absolutely lovely when it's coloured a light blue rather than a garish yellow or orange or orange or green or purple <laughs> which it sometimes is Glynis Wee knew what colour the sky was yes I, I, there is a problem with that though right if you're saying it seems to go brighter as the issue progresses even though it's getting later yeah it's all set on the same night um, yeah, the colouring will fluctuate on the nighttime scenes, because I presume this is happening at night, and later on Spider-Man swings past a full moon. Yeah. So I do presume that this is happening late evening into the nighttime. But if you'd coloured it jet black, we wouldn't have been able to see anything. There, there, well, it wouldn't be jet black, the sky is not jet black. No, I suppose you, the printing process of the time probably couldn't handle that, though. Yeah. I give a full plot, it's for colouring the sky blue, dude. Compared to some of the comics of this era we've covered, I'm happy with that. I'll take that. As far as checklists go, the only one the colourist is blue sky. <laughs> if that's all she had the chance of doing, fair play to her for doing it instead of going, I will colour this sky orange. 
because if the readers aren't giving me attention, <laughs> the issue is all wrong. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fair enough, yeah. Uh, the party scene that runs through the first five pages is wonderful. A great, Another great example of uh, sequential art from Mr. Gamble. Both of them don't skimp on the backgrounds here either. May's house looks lived in and real. At this point in Spider-Man history, May Parker was running a nursing home out of her old Forest Hills house, and all these people were semi-regular characters, including Arthur Chekhov, who is the character that kicks off the story. Both DeMatteis and writer Peter David got a lot of Star Trek gags out of his name. Yeah. I think DeMatteis created him. I could be wrong. He looks a lot like Nathan. Uh, Nathan's the guy in the wheelchair. Is he? Yeah. Right. And you'll notice that Nathan Lubensky was actually quite likeable here. He, he, looks a, he looks a lot like him anyway. No, I don't think he looks like Nathan. He always wore a beret. He's Nathan never... Nathan never... Yes. <laughs> Check off. Well, that's Russian, isn't it? It is. According to Star Trek. I don't know. It may be... According to Star Trek. Star Trek. Star Trek's never wrong. Star Trek's never <laughs> lied to me. Apart from the new one. Yeah. Yeah, Check off. It could have French lineage. I don't know. Maybe he was a beret and put onions around his neck. It was a striped top. <laughs> oh, cliches, we love you. He always carries around a baguette, doesn't he? <laughs> None of that is true. Even if he is French, he fights those cliches. Every morning, he gets up and he goes, I really want a big long stick of crusty bread, but ah, Zuta laws. I will not do that. Anyway. Uh, there's some nice comedy bits in the scene at the party. The Palomeros were a bickering elderly couple, here arguing over Christmas tree decorations. Sophie and Martha were kind of a geriatric, sex-obsessed cougar couple, which was a bit gross when they corralled Pete under the mistletoe, because he's clearly only supposed to be about 20, 21 in this story. Yeah. So that was that was a bit much. And there's a quite a funny bit where May Parker stuffs a large piece of Christmas cake in Peter's mouth mm. in the middle of him talking because she thinks he's too skinny. He's like, shut up, Peter, eat. <laughs> Just stuffs it in his face. <laughs> I laughed. I thought that was quite funny. Maybe it's just me. Uh, there is a scene in this comic that genuinely drives me nuts. Okay. Which is in tons of Christmas TV shows, films, and comics. Do people really wait until Christmas Eve to put up the tree? Some people might. How many times do you see that in a Christmas TV show of something? It's Christmas Eve. We're putting up the tree. Why have you waited this long? But you need to tell people it's Christmas. And putting a Christmas tree up is one of them. And most Christmas episodes are set on or before Christmas. Yeah, normally. They're normally on Christmas Eve. Yeah. That's the way it normally works with Christmas Does episodes. You can end it on midnight with a good... Oh, it's Christmas and we're all together and everything's right. Peter is drinking eggnog. I presume it's of the non-alcoholic variety. Because apparently you can have alcoholic and non-alcoholic eggnog. It sounds rank anyway. Uh, I think eggnog sounds god-awful. <laughs> I'll be brutally honest it's with you. the it. word nog. <laughs> you <have> some nog? <laughs> Always makes me think of noggin the nog. <laughs> Which was a children's TV show. Way back... In the, in the, I'm sure it's lovely. I've never had any, so I can't say whether I'm or not. Sure. It, it just sounds god awful. I'm sure it? the alcoholic type is lovely after a while. <laughs> You'll get to the point of alcohol, you just drink out. <laughs> eggnog! I'll have that. I don't care that it's yellow and has eggs in it. Maybe it doesn't have eggs in it, I don't know. That's just a, that's just a lie they're telling you. <laughs> I just call it nog. No one drinks it. Oh, it's like them sweets 
thing you moved out the other day. I just look at these sweets. What was it? It was, no, um, yeah. they are, uh, give you the taste oh, of coffee right. and cream. No, cookies and cream. Cookies and cream. And then on the back it said, does not contain <laughs> cookies or cream. <laughs> Maybe eggnog's the same. Does not contain egg or nog. And then in brackets, we don't know what nog is. But there's not in here. <laughs> that was like... By making me drink eggnog. <laughs> making me drink nog. I don't know what nog is. It sounds right, but there's alcohol in it. So I'm having some. <laughs> oh dear. Back to the story. The watcher just busts in. Yeah, yeah. My book has been cancelled. My backup strip in the Silver Surfer was cancelled. I'm just going to show up and grab the team up. I have no loose ends to tie up. But oh well. But I'm just going to show up, ruin Spider-Man's evening, change his clothes for him. Which I thought was a bit presumptuous. Wasn't it? Here, I've got you in your Spider-Man costume. I, I, was, I was having fun. Well, all right, I wasn't having fun with the two elderly geriatric cougars. But for the rest of the evening, I was having fun. Uh, it's a staggering coincidence as well, isn't it, that Spider-Man learn, learns about Chekhov's granddaughter the day the Watcher takes an interest in her. Why is the Watcher taking an interest in her? That is an exceptionally good point, <laughs> and one that we will come back to. Yeah. When because I was expecting there was there was a reason for this. Mm. I wouldn't hold your breath, lovely listeners. <laughs> Spider-Man here doesn't seem to know who the Watcher is. Yeah. Which flatly contradicts Marvel Team-Up number seven, where he actually had a conversation with him. Okay. Maybe, maybe this takes place before. Or maybe the Watcher just mind-wipes him. Maybe, yeah. After the conversation, because it seems like the kind of dickish move that the Watcher would partake <laughs> Probably, in, yeah. doesn't it? After giving Spider-Man the orb and no further information whatsoever... Yeah. And just here's an orb. There's a picture of a woman who you've never seen before tonight. New York City's pretty, pretty big place. Go and find her. You see Spider-Man. Cheers, mate. The Watcher buggers off back to his little blue area of the moon after he's done all of this. Yeah. Whereas we we essentially just learn that the whole reason of this is just a little bit moody because it's Christmas. That's it. That's his motivation. He also tries to sell us on the idea that saving Bet Chekhov is as important as battling the Overmind or Galactus. Yeah. Which sets this story up to be somehow greatly important, doesn't it? Once again, lovely listeners, I wouldn't get my hopes up. (laughs) The next page is hysterical. I did actually think this was genuinely funny. Spider-Man is on the phone to directory inquiries and the operator doesn't know the name Chekhov even when it's spelt out for her. And the scene basically culminates in Spider-Man swinging off. He doesn't hang the phone up. No. Which I thought was a bit, what's his name of it? And it just culminates with him swinging off and uh, the woman on the end of the phone saying, there's no reason to be rude, young man. We don't actually learn what he said to her. No. I think we can imagine. I I like his line of dialogue. Chekhov, as in Ensign. Ensign, I thought you said her name was Chekhov. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the, the only Star Trek gag in the issue, isn't it? Yeah. Which I, I thought I remember them getting more mileage out of the fact that he was called Chekhov. There are more issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Peter David one where he, he milks that gag for all it's worth, I think. Uh, as we mentioned, page four, we are given the impression that Peter is unaware of Chekhov's granddaughter and has never was never privy to her existence. Mm-hmm. That's how the scene read to me. Yeah. What did you think? I read it, sir. However, on page nine, 
it stated that there was a previous conversation between Peter and Mr. Chekhov about his granddaughter, and Chekhov casually mentioned to Peter that she lives in Brooklyn. That was really fortunate. Yeah. And it was incredibly lucky that Peter even remembers the conversation, because without that little nugget of information, story kind of stops here, doesn't it? Mm. Because it's knowing that she's in Brooklyn that leads him to director inquiries to be able to say, I'm looking for a bet Chekhov in Brooklyn. If he'd just gone to the phone and said, I'm looking for Bet Chekhov, the, the director inquiries woman really would have been within her rights to say, what? Do you have an address? No. Phone number? No. Zip code? No. What the hell do you want me to do about this? You say you're Spider-Man? I don't believe you. Go away. Crank call. What do you use your phone for? <laughs> when do you use it? <laughs> when I'm awake. Uh, there was a detective named Keating who was a semi-regular in the Spider-Man titles at this time. When Peter arrives at Beck Chekhov's apartment, there is a police officer who isn't a, a, cl- um, um, a clothed officer, a uniformed officer, who gives him a hard time. It doesn't state whether this is Keating or not here on page 10, but they clearly know each other and are not entirely friendly. It's Harvey Bullock. It could be Harvey Bullock, but I'm going with Lieutenant Keating because he was the semi-regular police person that Spider-Man had an antagonistic relationship with at the time. That's my bet. I could be wrong. I mean, I don't consult anything on this, so I'm just making it up as I go along. Mark Wade hates Captain America calling people CERN, and it's a valid point, isn't it? Because that little cameo Cappy has on pages 11 and 12, the dialogue does play him as really old. It's not out of character, because Dematheus, Dematis, whatever, was writing Cap at this time, but it's a bit off. No reason to get jumpy, son. It's just an old soldier who happens to be passing by. And you're like, really? What was wrong with just saying, hey, Spidey, how you doing, man? I, 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 I quite like it, actually. The, uh, I like that Captain America. It, well, it does give the, the impression Captain America is older than he really is, which I suppose he would appear that way to Spider-Man, wouldn't he? Yeah. You know, Captain America fought in World War II. Uh, in retelling this story to Captain America, did Spider-Man mention the Watcher? Because even if Spider-Man doesn't know who the Watcher is, surely Captain America does. Maybe everyone did just forget. <laughs> everyone just forgets their encounters with the Watcher. Yeah. He doesn't mind wiping everyone if the story requ- requires them to not know who the Watcher is. Fair enough. I think it's entirely possible that the writer and the editor of this issue just didn't know that Marvel Team Up 7 happened. There, there could also be that. That's my guess. Yeah. <laughs> Spider-Man busting the chops of all the people in the bar is always amusing. Doesn't really have much to the story, does it? Not really. It leads to a dead end for Spider-Man, really. Uh, but this lovely little Christmas story suddenly takes a dark turn here on page 15, where we learn that Bet's involved with a woman beater, stolen cocaine, and the mob. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, I suddenly got to that page and went, where did that come from? Cocaine? The mob? Beaten up? Woman beating? In a Christmas story, this this makes like, uh, this makes shooting your eye out look a lot tame. Yeah, I was I was I, I did it did take a little bit of a, a twist. Mm. There it has to be said. Uh, page sixteen, the license plate on the car is R two D two. I don't know why. Somebody's a Star Wars fan, obviously. Uh, and then we get to the end of the story where Beck gets shot dead. Yeah. <laughs> It's a dark turn and a sudden dark U-turn. It's even a darker turn, I think. Um, Let me get this right. 
Yeah. Let's just make sure that I'm covering all my bases here. Spider-Man is sent on a wild goose chase with little to no real information to go on to rescue a woman he only knows tangentially, only to fail miserably and then have the Watcher have to show up and save her life anyway, but not enough to actually save her, so Spider-Man is the one who has to get her to the hospital. Yeah. Is my interpretation of this story correct? Yeah. Why the hell did he not do this himself then, the Watcher? Because he, he can't tamper, even though he does. He can't interfere, even yeah. though he quite plainly interferes. Yeah. I mean, he's shown watching her on his big, nice home cinema screen in his blue area of the moon bachelor pad. <laughs> Why the hell did he not just give Spider-Man more than a useless orb? Yeah. Is, is it not a bit creepy to the, the watcher watching her? Watching a random woman? Yeah. I mean, why did he pick on her? He's not watching, like, all of Brooklyn. He's very he's specifically, he's watching, specifically watching this girl. But it's like, page 18 has some lovely artwork with the spider signal. I love the spider signal. I know yeah. it's a rip-off of the bat signal, but it's still cool. Some lovely colouring and some great artwork from, uh, from Kerry Gamble, as to be expected. But... The Watcher did all of this just to feel human. Yeah. I oh. shall watch this woman go through her darkest stages of her life. Because hopefully she'll have a shower. Addicted <laughs> to cocaine, involvement in the mob, and finally being shot dead. Because this <laughs> makes me feel jolly good on a Christmas Eve. <laughs> Uh, this is my Christmas present. I mean, you know, okay, it's Christmas. As with all of DeMathis' writing, the central plank of this issue is emotion. DeMathis being a very emotional writer who likes to tug at the heartstrings rather than have Spider-Man punch people in the face a lot, although he does that as well, to be fair. This is the writer who wanted to have Captain America become a pacifist, after all, so let's take that into account. But the moment where the Watcher cries because he's turned his back on his own people due to his interfering with humanity not like that uh, is quite powerful and this is a solid and entertaining albeit incredibly sentimental Christmas tale that I felt got by purely on its excellent characterisation and magnificent artwork although tonally it's all over the map and the payoff is incredibly feeble. Yeah. Isn't it? It's One minute it's a comedy where these two elderly cougars are trying to get this 20-year-old bloke under the mistletoe. And the next thing it's this big serious mediation on children losing touch with their families. And then it's a comedy again while Spider-Man has conversations with directory inquiries. And then it's, it's suddenly, towards the end, it becomes this this woman's getting beaten well they're making sure everyone gets a Christmas present whether it's a 20 year old bloke or a bullet let's be honest this kind of schmaltzy story only really works at Christmas especially given that we are given absolutely no reason that the watcher should be interested in saving Bet Chekhov is she important in the grand scheme of things? Does her son grow up to be the first Russian starship captain? Is she responsible for giving birth to the saviour of mankind when the inevitable war against the machine starts? Not a clue. No idea. We're never told. Nope. Spoilers. Yeah. Turns out the Watcher simply wanted to save a life this Christmas Eve. Well, it's a bloody good job it was somebody who was tangentially related to Spider-Man then, wasn't it? <laughs> Imagine if you just turned some random woman yeah. and then give it an orb to Spider-Man and Spider-Man had looked at it and gone, I have no idea who this woman is. Do you get HBO on this? 
gives it goes to the X Men like Kurt shows up. Oh, I know. <laughs> Just wanders around town asking people, "Do you know this woman?" He, he crashed into my swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Watcher is as infuriatingly vague as ever depositing an orb on Spider-Man with Bet's face on it, but giving Spider-Man absolutely no clue on how to proceed, or where to go, or what to do, or what he'd do when he gets wherever he's supposed to be. Mm. The story really doesn't stand up to scrutiny, but not surprisingly, DeMathis, who, as mentioned, was more interested in emotion than fighting, manages to make it all work by sheer force of will. Kerry Gamill, one of the most underrated artists in comics history, turns in his usual fine job, and together they manage to create an undemanding and sentimental tale. This team of DeMathis and Gamill were delivering solid work on Marvel Team Up at this time, and I did always wonder why, although DeMathis would get his shot at the Major League Spider-Man books, Gamill never did, because the art's pretty excellent Mm. throughout the entire issue. What did you think of this one, Michael? I really enjoyed this one. Did you? I did, yeah. What made you enjoy it? The fact that it was all over the place? <laughs> or the fact that suddenly halfway through it just turns really dark? Very bleak, yeah. <laughs> Happy Christmas! <laughs> I just shot her! <laughs> magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. Uh, we have the actual comic for this one, but there's not really any good adverts in it. There's a Dungeons & Dragons ad. Bubble Yum advert, which, you know... It's an advert for Bubblegum. How interesting is it going to be? Another Dungeons and Dragons ad. Dungeons and Dragons was big this year, obviously. I love the subscription advert. Deck the halls with Marvel Comics. Tra la 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 la. I sing. Staple them up on your wall. Yeah, well, I love as well. That's Magneto, Doctor Octopus, and Doctor Doom singing that. <laughs> and Spider Man's just popping down the chimney with a Christmas hat on. So that was quite funny. Abusing children into buying subscriptions. <laughs> buying comics. <Yeah. laughs> buying subscriptions, I'm not going to leave. Uh, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe advert's pretty good, with the Watcher just sitting there going, I didn't know that, I must have blinked. Even the Watcher can forget things. Yeah, which is a neat little advert. Bullpin Bulletins is is alright, you know. It's okay. The Plugging Dreadstar by Jim Sterling in the Mighty Marvel checklist. The Dark Crystal movie adaptation was out this week. The Marvel graphic novel was The Star Slammers by Walt Simonson, which I've never read. Sure, it's very good, uh, and that's pretty much it. You know, an advert for Riddle of the Sphinx, which was an eye magic game, and an advert for Super Cobra from Parker Brothers. Not just Cobra, but Super Cobra. Super Cobra. And that about wraps it up, isn't it? For another year. A neat little bow. A neat little bow yeah. that you can unwrap on Christmas Day. How lovely is that? You are. As Christmas is a time of thanks and reflection, I would like to thank my lovely wife, Angela, for not only tolerating but encouraging this ridiculous endeavour every week. <laughs> and Michael, thank you, oh, thank for you continuing much. to join me every week. I'd like to thank Adam and Anya for being delightful and infuriating in equal measure. Equal? Equal. I'd like to thank my mum and for marrying my stepfather, who brought loads of comics with him, and my nan and granddad for not only buying those first comics and annuals for me, but for encouraging my reading. I also want to say a hearty thank you to everyone who has said nice things about the show, and to those that haven't. It's Merry Christmas. Even if you've not said nice things, Happy Christmas to you anyway. Thanks also to everybody who listens, emails, Facebooks, and generally just chats with us about comics. There seems to have been quite a lot of new listeners this year, and gratifyingly, most of them seem to have stuck around, except the ones that we mentioned earlier on (laughs) that have gone. (laughs) Uh, I would thank individuals, but I'm pretty sure I'd forget someone. 
and that's worse than not mentioning names. So individual yeah. people, just take you it. Know that I you thank, are. Yeah, you know who you are. Just take it that I thank you personally. We'll be back on Thursday, the second of January, for Volume Three. Volume Three. Volume Three. We're gonna what, re- what, we're gonna what? renumber. What's the end of a volume? What, uh, what now that we're on Two True Freaks, the end of a volume is the end of a year. Right. It okay. used to be uh, when I when, had when to take an episode off when Podomatic. When sales were down. Yeah, when sales were down, we relaunched <laughs> the new number one. When we were on Podomatic, what it was was basically when we got to a point where I had to take old episodes down, right. I renumbered with a new number one. Right. Because I didn't want people to look at the show and go, well, they've got 40 odd episodes here that I've never listened to. I can't listen to this. You number it with a new number one, they'll go, oh, I'll start it there. Right. Now we're on Two True Freaks. Uh, this entire year was volume two. And starting in January, I'll rename it Volume 3, Number 1. Okay. And we'll do the same thing again. The overall episode numbering will continue. Yeah. But I, don't, I, don't, I personally don't like the idea of having episode 408. I would rather keep it that the episode numbers were quite low. Okay. I don't know. Whether, I, honestly, I don't know whether it puts people off. I don't know, it's just me I, personally. I kind of like it. With it being my show, the larger the number is, we're going on for a while. Well, we still keep a track of the number, yeah, so yeah. we will know when we hit 200 and, and all that stuff, but for the most part, I like it being... I like people looking at it and going, right, well, this is the start of a new volume, or this is the start of new coverage. I'll give this a listen mm. and see what happens. But that's just me. Our annual Geeky Gifts episode, interspersed with emails, will kick off 2014. Will it? Yeah, that's the episode that will go up then. Right. Coming up, we've got Slam Bradley. We have. The Marvel Zombies. Yes. And an EC Comics show, which I'm very much looking forward to. Also coming up, we're going to be celebrating the Joker's birthday. Not his 75th. <laughs> uh, as part of Batman's 75th birthday. See what I did there? Covered me on back. Yeah. And giving the devil his due, celebrating Daredevil's birthdays also on the cards for early this year. So all that remains is to wish each and every one of you lovely listeners a very Merry Christmas and a happy and prosperous New Year. You be good to yourself, my friends. See you in a week or so. See you in the New Year. Yeah. We'll be back. We hope you will too. Bye-bye. Goodbye. used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun, and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.
place I found a stowaway upon my ship on Christmas Day. I was fair, so I gave him a chance. You shouldn't be here. What's your tale? I ought to throw you to the whale. He just smiled and said, "Come here, let's dance." He said, "For I was he'll love find a way to be with my lover upon Christmas Day, and I'll run and I'll roam, I'll cover the ground. This Christmas I'll see you, I'll be around." Me bound, his girl back home, waiting patient all alone. While we danced, I shed a little tear. He closed his eyes, all out at sea. I think he danced with her, not me. I'll just have to wait another year. He said, "For I want to feel, I'll find a way to be with my lover upon Christmas Day." Stranger with a haunting face, here then 